to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. This two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information, and Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Wednesday, July 26th, we are studying Psalm 133. In today's text, we rejoice in the blessing that God gives to brothers who dwell in unity. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us Pastor Joshua Holler. Pastor Holler serves at Grace Evangelical Lutheran Church in Fairgrove, Michigan. Pastor Holler, welcome back to Sharp, or welcome to Sharp Iron. Thank you. Good to be First here. First time you and I have chatted. Nice to, nice to have you with us. Yes, thank you. Very good. And I forgot to ask you beforehand, am I saying your name correctly? Uh, technically, no. It's Haller. Oh. Haller, thank you. I should have okay. asked you first. Pastor, Pastor okay. Joshua Haller of Grace Evangelical Lutheran Church in Fairgrove, Michigan. Very good. Glad to have you today, Pastor. So we get to talk about Psalm 133. Before we talk specifically about Psalm 133, talk to us just in general about the Psalms. Uh, how should we approach the Psalms as Christians? Well, uh, the Psalms are certainly the hymn book of the Old Testament, um, something that was used by God's people for years and years and still being used today. Um, uh, so they are wonderful hymns for us to use in our daily devotional life. Um, but certainly well, we can uh, pick out of them uh, wonderful and uh, beautiful uh, texts which point to Christ. Um, and that's really sort of uh, what would be my goal in, in reading the Psalms is to find Christ within them. When it comes to the Psalms, because they are hymns and prayers that we do use in that way today, I think sometimes we forget that part about the Psalms, that they do point us to Christ. Some of them are very obvious. For example, Psalm 22, when you hear David cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or even Psalm 23, the one after it, the Lord is my shepherd. We very easily associate those with Jesus. The one that we've got today, though, is one that maybe we don't think about that right away. And so it's, it's always a helpful reminder when we come to the Psalms to be looking for Christ, because he himself tells us that they testify of him. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms, they all testify of Christ. So we always want to be looking for him in the Psalms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And um, as you said, this one doesn't seem as though he's there, but I think we'll definitely find him there. All right, uh, good. Yeah. That's good. So we are in Psalm 133, which the superscription says is a song of ascents. We've looked at a couple other song songs of ascents here in the, the Psalter. Remind us of, of what that means or what that might mean. What are we talking about with the song of ascent? Yeah, so the uh, song of ascents is uh, Psalms 120 through 134, so 15 psalms. Um, and the word for a sense is, um, means a stairway or a step. Um, in our liturgy today, the word could be used as gradual. Um, so we're not exactly sure what these songs are and why they're indicated as songs of a sense um, or degrees as it's in the King James. But there's two basic um, ideas as to what they might mean. The first is, referring to the steps that are found in the temple 
between the court of women and the court of the Israelites. Um, the court of women is not just where women were, but all Israelites could gather. Um, and then there were these steps that went up into what we would call the temple proper, where the altar was, the sacrifices are made, and where the holy place and the most holy place were located. Um, and so those steps going up are 15 steps. Um, so fits well with the 15 Psalms. Um, the, the Mishnah, which is a, uh, uh, Jewish rabbinical literature piece that, uh, gives us some laws of the day, some liturgical laws, especially says that the Levites would be on these steps and singing, um, these songs of ascents. Um, when is debated, but most likely during the three major festivals, which brings us to the second option as to what these songs of ascents are. And that is that they were used uh, by the pilgrims as they made their way to Jerusalem for those three major festivals, namely the Passover, uh, the Feast of Weeks, or as we would know it as the Feast of Pentecost and the Feast of Booths. So these three major festivals, God commanded every uh, man to attend if he were uh, able. And in um, Isaiah 30, it's indicated that they would be singing on their way to Jerusalem. And so as we hear throughout scripture, whenever someone journeys to Jerusalem, he's always journeying up. So he's always ascending up Mount Zion to the temple, to Jerusalem. And so these would be the Psalms that they would have sung. And if that's the case, they certainly would have been uh, memorized. And they're all quite short, so that that's, uh, you know, fairly easy for us to, to, uh, to buy into, that they would have had them memorized and would have been singing them along, um, along the way. Mm. A previous guest pointed out with one of the other songs of ascent, then with that use during pilgrimage, that we should think about Jesus himself singing these psalms, having them memorized on his trips to Jerusalem, both as a 12-year-old boy, as we know, and during his childhood, but also later in life when he goes up to Jerusalem, he's using these psalms. Yeah, most definitely. Um, we know that uh, our Lord sung a hymn as he uh, made his way or, or was... Uh, got to the Garden of Gethsemane. That's probably not one of these Psalms, but certainly he and his disciples as good uh, confessional Jewish men would have had these Psalms at the uh, tip of their tongue. Now, in the Songs of Ascent, this one is, is listed as of David. Is there any historical background or indicator from David's life that we might be able to attach a, a you know, might, when he might have composed this? Um, not that I could come up with, but I found it sort of ironic that this psalm is all about brothers dwelling in unity. And David in his life didn't really see that yeah. um, in his relationship with his brothers. As uh, Samuel came to anoint one of Jesse's sons, uh, they went through the line and none of his older brothers were chosen, but they had to go and get David, who was out watching the sheep. And from there, we see that the relationship with his brothers was never really a good one. Mm. He comes to defeat Goliath, and one of his brothers basically says, what are you doing here? You're just here to cause right. some trouble. 
But then you have David's sons as well, who yeah. also don't have a great relationship with one another or, or a great relationship with their father. Uh, Amnon uh, uh, sleeps with his uh, what be a stepsister uh, and then is uh, killed by one of his brothers, Absalom. And Absalom tries to take over the kingdom from David uh, and dies in the process. And then uh, uh, Adonijah uh, tries to take the kingdom from uh, Solomon after David dies. Right. So at the very least, it's ironic uh, that David uh, pens this psalm, probably in hopes that his brothers would dwell in unity with him and his sons would dwell in unity with with one another. But that theme of brothers not getting along, of course, is throughout Holy Scripture from Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, all the way to our Lord, whose brothers thought that he was out of his mind. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good point to see that throughout the Scriptures. Within David's life, the only example that I could think of, and it's, it's not a, a familial brother, but you have his a very close friendship with Jonathan, the son of Saul, yeah. That, that perhaps David got to experience this sort of unity, at least in, in that friendship. Although, just talking about the way that it didn't play itself out in the, the brothers by blood that David had, maybe this can be a, a way of just to think about when, when we're talking about brothers dwelling in unity within Psalm 133, are we talking primarily about physical brothers, or is there more going on, do you think? Definitely more going on. Um that the, this brotherhood is not uh, simply by blood, but it's by faith, uh, that this brotherhood is speaking of the church. Um, and at David's time, it's speaking of the Jewish people of the kingdom of, of Israel. Uh, and in our day, uh, it's speaking of the church, the body of Christ, uh, that whether we're related by blood or not matters, matters not, uh, what unites us is, is Christ. And therefore we are, uh, all brothers brothers with Christ and brothers with one another. Yeah, yeah. So that's something to keep in mind as we read Psalm 133. Let's turn to the text. A song of ascents of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. That's our text. That's Psalm 133. Pastor Haller, this psalm is relatively short, especially compared to the other ones we've been looking at within this study here on Sharper Iron. So in terms of a, a structure or stanzas, maybe I don't know that there's stanzas so much, but is there a, a structure to this psalm that's helpful? Just kind of give us that bird's eye view. Yeah, I would say verse one sort of sets the stage for us that we're going to talk about unity among the brothers. Um, and then verses two and three give us two examples of what that unity is like, uh, two analogies to help us better understand um, how, this, how, how we are unified. Um, so uh, in, in that sense, it's sort of broken up into, th into three parts. Um, Yep. Uh, yeah, like I said, there's not a whole lot there to, yeah. I mean, in terms of length. So you've got three basic things going on. So let's, let's start with that first verse. Behold, yeah. how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Let's, let's talk, let me just take us into those words. 
So right off the bat, behold, uh, telling us something of great significance. Look at this, um, uh, bringing attention to this, how good and pleasant it is. Um, not just good, but, but pleasant. It's delightful. It's wonderful uh, when brothers dwell in unity. Um, and as we're going to see uh, with the rest of this psalm is that these brothers are unified when they come to the temple. And uh, certainly, however you take the songs of a sense, uh, they have to deal with the temple, coming to the temple to worship. And so that's really where we see the brothers unified, where they come together, that the temple is the central location of worship. It was the only place God dedicated for sacrifice. And we see how both Israel and Judah get in trouble with themselves when they try to create different worship locations. This is it. This is where God said he would dwell with his people. And therefore, this is where the brothers come to dwell in unity with one another. Hmm. So at the time of David, we have all sorts of men coming from all over Israel, from miles away, again, for these three major festivals. That's what I want to focus on is when the brothers come together for these three different times of the year, they're coming from all over all over the promised land. Um, and they come from different backgrounds and have even some differences in their cultures and how they live. But when they come together in Jerusalem to worship, to offer these sacrifices, to dwell with God, they are unified as one. And we see this even more drastically at the time of our Lord, that uh, as history uh, of both the kingdom of Israel and Judah uh, Jews were dispersed all over the world because of the Assyrian and Babylonian captivity. So we have Jews coming from uh, Asia Minor and from uh, Rome all the way to Jerusalem. Again, if they're able to, that would have been a lot more difficult at, at the time of our Lord. Um, if they're able to, to come to these three major festivals, we see this unity, most especially as we celebrate as Christians, Pentecost that there the Feast of Weeks is being celebrated in the temple. And we indeed have Jews from all over the world who don't even speak the same language. Um, I always sort of compare it to going to an airport in, in some other country where they speak a language you don't understand and all the signage is in different languages. And then finally, you find someone who speaks English. That's how it was for the Jews at Pentecost, that the apostles are speaking in their own tongue and their own language. But even even there at that time, they're unified by the temple, that they are coming together again so that God can dwell with them and they can dwell in unity um, with, one, with one another. So it's really worship that unifies the brothers. Uh, the liturgy, the ceremony, their doctrine and practice, um, whatever their differences may be, that is what brings them together as one. And when they are together for that worship, it is good and it is pleasant. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So there's a, there's a couple of things I think we can pick up from these words. One, and I don't know that I was paying attention when I was reading ahead of time, but when you were saying it earlier, it kind of it hit me. Behold, how good! F focusing on that word, that it is good. Thinking about the the goodness of creation when God created everything in Genesis one over and over again, He said it is good. 
and and so I wonder, and then the and then connecting that to what you're saying that when you go to the temple, you're going there, you know, with the brothers, yes, but the reason you're all together and there's unity is because that's where God has come to dwell with you. So connecting the the thought that in the temple God comes to dwell with His people, and it's good to be there together, right? Not alone. I mean, it's almost. I'm. I wonder if there's some connections to this. Is almost a, a return to not a return to Eden, but there's there's elements in which this is the Lord fixing, making right what was broken by our sin, as He calls His people together into a unity with Him. This is this is good in the sense that creation was good when God created everything. Yeah, that's. I, I love that. Um, the temple certainly uh, was a return to the garden or a restoration of uh, that community that, that man had with God. And we see that even in the, um, the furniture of the tabernacle, you have the lampstand in the holy place is pictured as a tree, like the tree of life. Um, you have uh, inside of the holy place, it's, it's pictured with the cherubim and there's pomegranate, a uh, pomegranate to the, uh, edge of the high priest's robes. So you have these images of, of, of a garden, of paradise, uh, that again, when God's people come together, that he might dwell with them and, and they might dwell with him. Uh, it is uh, coming back to what Adam and Eve had, that they were able to walk with God in the, in the cool of the garden and, mm-hmm. and be at peace with him. And yes, as you said, and it was good. Uh, God's uh, unity with man is what makes things good. Mm. Well, and then in that unity with man, we are united to each other. So, and I, I think this is an important point for for this psalm, and especially as we think about what this unity actually means. The unity that's being described here is a unity that starts with with God coming to us, and then because we are united to Him, we have that unity with each other. And if we if we try to find unity somewhere else, then it's that's not the unity that we're talking about in Psalm 133 and in other places that we might, might go later. Yeah, this, this psalm is not just David saying, hey, guys, get along and play nice, because that would really be good and pleasant, and I'd yeah. be happy with you. Um, so this isn't an effort of us just to, to get along. But as you said, it's a unity that is really created by God, given uh, from God. And, and we see that in a language in Hebrew, um, uh, a certain verb is used again and again, yarad, which simply means mm. to come down yeah. or to descend. So as this unity is, uh, is described in these two examples in verses two and three, the oil on the head and the dew of Hermon, both is, are described as coming down, mm. that the oil is running down on the beard, uh, on the beard of Aaron, then running down on the collar of his robes. And then the dew of Hermon falls, that's the same word, running down, coming down, falls on the mountains of Zion. So this unity doesn't just come out of thin air. It's not created by us, uh, by again, simply trying harder to just get along with one another, but it's a gift of God that the unity or as we'll see it in the end of verse three, the blessing comes from above. Uh, it's top, it comes from top to bottom. So it begins with God and covers over uh, 
all of God's people, mm -hmm. uh, from Aaron to the people he serves, from Hermon, this high mountain, all the way down to the mountains of Zion. This blessing, this life forevermore is from God to man. Mm. Yeah, and, and I love that, that you're finding that just in the verbs, and I think that's so important. These things are, the examples that are used are things that come down. So the unity is what comes down from God. It is created by Him. That's an excellent way of saying it. It's given by Him. It's not something we create. Even just thinking about the, the notion of things coming down in the context of the songs of ascent, you know, the, these songs in which people are, are going up in one way or another, well, I mean, just think about, and I'm, I'm just going to connect it right away to the divine service. You know, why do we come to the divine service? It's not so much for us to come to God to serve Him, but rather it's for Him to bring His gifts down to serve us. And again, just that language within Psalm 133 points to that reality that, that we still live in today. Yes, most definitely. We, we got to get this order correct. We are not the ones to climb up into heaven, but our Lord is the one who came down from Jacob's ladder, uh, who descended for our sake, not only in his incarnation, but even now today in the divine service. Um, this reminds me of in the, the liturgy and the preface when we say, lift up your hearts and the congregation responds, we lift them up to the Lord. That isn't to say that we take the heart out of our chest and throw it high into the sky, but rather it's simply to recognize not that we are ascending to God into heaven, but heaven is descending down to us here, most specifically in the Holy Supper. So to lift up your hearts is simply to lift up your eyes to the altar and see that your God has come down to you. And by his dwelling with you, uh, he is unifying us as brothers in Christ. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then, I mean, and that, and this was something else that I had thought of earlier when you were talking about unity within the service of the sacrament. So you keep going in, in the service of the sacrament in the preface. At the end of the proper preface, you know, we are, we are doing this with angels and archangels and all the company of heavens. I mean, you talk about the unity of brothers— it extends not only, and again, speaking about the church today, from, from one place to the next, from one Christian congregation to the next, but a unity that exists within heaven. And again, then at, to, to build on what you were just saying, as you go into the Sanctus, which is what you sing automatically out of that, you sing the song of heaven, holy, 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 and then you sing the song of Palm Sunday, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's that language of God coming to you, to heaven meeting earth, heaven coming down to earth there in the divine service, so that he serves us as we come to him. Beautifully said. Um, that's exactly what takes place. And, and again, um, it's, it's vital to have that order, uh, that, that, that correct order, because we could easily turn things around, uh, which... Uh, turns our theology around and really uh, takes away the unity that God has to bring. That is, it places the the um, the weight of being unified on our own shoulders. So, talk a little bit about that because I mean, this was another, and I know I think we'll talk more about. But why? Why? What's the trouble if we try to create the unity ourselves? Why? Why does that? Because I think that's something that you know we hear. Psalm, a psalm like this, other passages in the scriptures that talk about the need for unity within the church, and we get this idea that we have to do it. Well, how does that run us the wrong direction? 
Well, I think first off, you can just uh, read the Bible and see that it's never worked. <laughs> that that God's people have, trying, uh, have been trying to do this uh, from the beginning, taking matters into their own hands, whether, you know, really to be uni uni united with one another, we have to be united with God. And uh, man has been making attempts at that uh, since the Tower of Babel, uh, even before then. Um, so it, does, it doesn't work. <laughs> it's never worked. And God always has to intercede. And the Old Testament is just the same story played over again and again, that man attempts to do what God has uh, ordained for himself to do. Um, and uh, so, it, so any attempt at uh, trying to take things into our own hands uh, runs into works righteousness. And uh, works righteousness simply does not work. We cannot do it. Yeah, absolutely. So in any time we try to take into our hands that which belongs to God, we mess it up. So if we look for that unity in whatever it is that we build from the bottom up and coming up, then we're going to get it wrong. Rather, Psalm 33 and other passages in Scripture that speak about the unity of the Christian Church, it must be a gift that comes down from above. God alone can create it. When He brings us to dwell with Him— that is when we have this unity with each other. That is good and pleasant. It is certainly desirable, something that we should seek, something that must be sought, though, in what God himself gives, in what comes down from him the way that he serves. So we'll, we'll pick up more of those thoughts on the other side of the break. Keep looking at some of these images that are given here in Psalm 133. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Joshua Haller this morning. We will be right back. Please stick around. Lutheran Church Extension Fund exists to support Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and church workers. How do we do this? Your investment with LCEF makes it possible for LCMS churches, schools, organizations, and church workers to receive low-cost loans for new and growing ministries. And faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, make that possible when you invest with LCEF. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, July 26th. We're studying Psalm 133 with Pastor Joshua Haller. He serves at Grace Evangelical Lutheran Church in Fairgrove, Michigan. Pastor Haller, prior to the break, we're talking about the unity that is given by God. It comes down from Him. David emphasizes that in the two examples that he uses, both of which are things that come down. So the first is in verse 2. He says, this is like precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Talk to us about this image. So this is uh, clearly speaking about the ordination of priests, the ordination of Aaron, in which they would take 
uh, oil and anoint uh, the priests, uh, consecrating them and setting them apart for service to God and his people. Um, and uh, it's described as precious oil. So they didn't just take out their bottle of olive oil at home that they'd cook with and pour it on Aaron. This was specific oil used uh, for uh, uh, ordaining priests and consecrating the tabernacle and temple. Um, and what we see with this oil is that there's a lot of different ingredients to it that are brought together to make one oil. So we have this image of, of unity, that there's myrrh and cinnamon and other spices that are brought together uh, along with the olive oil. Uh, to make this sacred anointing oil, this holy anointing oil, that was to be used only for the use of uh, ordination and consecration. Um, and so this uh, oil first was poured upon Aaron's head by his uh, brother Moses at the ordination uh, in Leviticus chapter eight. And then uh, we read before that in Exodus 40, how first, the tabernacle was consecrated, that just about everything was anointed with this oil. And anything that was anointed with this oil became holy. Um, that Aaron, despite his faults, his major fault of building a golden cap and having the people worship it, uh, still he is consecrated and set apart for the work of God's people in the tabernacle. And then all of the, the, the pieces of furniture and the utensils that were used, again, beautifully made, wonderfully made, but not really anything special until they're anointed uh, and set apart for holy use. So they would not use these utensils uh, to eat their bowl of cereal in the morning. They would not use uh, the priest's robes uh, uh, to go to bed at night. These were used only for the divine service in the tabernacle and later on in the temple. And what we see in this imagery in verse two is that this precious oil begins on the head, runs down on his beard, and then on the collar of his robe. So very vivid imagery. I mean, getting uh, so close as, as Aaron's beard, uh, that this oil is just soaking itself on his hair his beard, his clothes. Again, this, this idea of starting from the top and working down to the bottom. That the unity that's being described here with this oil uh, is a gift from God uh, coming from above, down below. Uh, here it's covering all of Aaron's body so that his entire body is consecrated, not just his head, not just the top, but all the way down. And we can see that for the people of Israel that they are consecrated from the top down, that, that even the lowest class of Israelites are still holy to the Lord, um, that everyone is gathered together. And again, especially at the tabernacle or at the temple later on, uh, it doesn't matter your class, at least in the eyes of God, in the eyes of man, uh, certainly that's a little different, but in the eyes of God, he sees all of them as precious, all of them as those whom he has anointed in a very real sense, that he has consecrated, that he has said, you are my people and I am your God. Mm. 
that the people of Israel were not individuals, but they were one unified body. Hmm. So thinking about that, then in connection to the to the church today, you, you use the language of body, and I think appropriately so. All of Aaron's body here is is you know being anointed with oil. The entire body of the people of Israel. This is the language that that Paul uses in First Corinthians twelve to talk about the church, the body of Christ, and and how from the top to the bottom, well, Christ is the head, but the rest of the body, all the all of its members are holy to the Lord. And that, that affects the way that we live together as the church. I mean, it seems like that, that's still operative within the church today. Absolutely. And we see uh, this disunity this in uh, 1 Corinthians yeah. that Paul has that's to right. deal with. Yeah. That's where he brings up the body as well as in the book of Romans. But here they're gathering for the divine service for the Lord's Supper. And the rich who have the pleasure of not having to work as hard as the, the poor and lower class uh, get to church early or at least on time and uh, aren't willing to wait for those who are still trickling in. And that leads to drunkenness and gluttony and uh, disunity. Um, and so Paul instructs them to, of course, wait for one another. But yeah, this uh, Paul wonderfully uh, shows that the church is indeed a body. As you said, Christ is our head. So here the oil is poured first upon him that we could say he was anointed with the Holy Spirit in the Jordan River uh, at his baptism. And then uh, from him, through his death and resurrection, we are anointed with that same Holy Spirit. Uh, we, as St. Peter says, are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And now we are to offer ourselves, as Paul says in Romans 12, as living sacrifices to God, which is our spiritual worship. So whether you are a pastor or just a layman, whether you are a leader in the church or just someone who trickles in and out, um, we are all one in Christ and each of us matters. And that's Paul's real point that um, every member of the body is important. Imagine cutting off your left ear. You don't say, well, it's just the left ear. Well, that changes everything for the body. And the body has to get used to not having the left ear anymore. Um, when one member suffers, we all suffer. When one member rejoices, we all rejoice. So again, this unity comes from God. This isn't, hey, you members of the body work better together. Uh, but that Christ has united us as this body. He has formed us and shaped us and created the church as one. And it's only through him and by him that we are the body and remain the body and not amputated members uh, separated and disunited from, from each other. Yeah, Paul, I mean, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul uses the same language about, you know, God is the one who arranged the members of the body, right? It's, it's always God's action. And, and I know we talked about that before, but I think maybe just another point to pick up with that or to add to that is, is when God is the one doing the acting, look at the the generosity of his gifts. So on, on the one hand, yes, the oil is going to go from the head and run down on the beard. It's going to cover all of Aaron. Think about how much oil that's got to take. I mean, I, you know, I imagine that that's got just a what, a... what a wonderful gift, the overflowing nature of it. You think about uh, first or not first John, John 1, that Jesus gives grace upon grace. 
when God is the one who's doing the action, He's always going to give us far more abundantly than if we had tried to do it ourselves. Yeah, Aaron's essentially showered with this oil. And again, precious oil, this is expensive oil. This isn't, you know, just stuff we can uh, waste. Uh, But the Lord does. He wastes precious oil on his church that he is abundant in his mercy, giving to the prodigal son what he does not deserve and to his older brother, uh, uh, that all that I have is yours. Psalm 23, my cup overflows. Yes, yes, thank you. Yes, the Lord does that too, yeah. The Lord doesn't just fill our cup to the brim, uh, it overflows. The imagery I always use in catechesis is it's like those commercials for paper towels where the three-year-old takes a juice out of the fridge and goes to the counter and pour, tries to pour herself a, a glass. It never works. It just, it goes everywhere. Yeah. That's the, the abundance of, of God's mercy that he has for us as the church. Absolutely, absolutely, and I, I love the connection you made to to Jesus' baptism, where the where he is anointed with the Holy Spirit. Just also thinking through the life of Jesus, I, I wonder if there's a I'm not sure if there's a connection to his anointing before his burial. When when I mean, talk about a costly sacrifice when all of that perfume is poured out and anoint Jesus is anointed prior to to his burial. That's the way he describes it, and the disciples thinks it's a think it's a waste. And he says, no, she's, she's preparing me for my burial. This truly is a precious thing that she's done. I, Indeed. I wonder if there's a—I'm not sure if there's a connection. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I think there's definitely a connection with uh, Aaron's ordination that uh, there, you could say, our, our Lord is being anointed for the work he's about to do in offering the final sacrifice. Yeah. Um, but certainly, uh, yeah, his whole body is anointed there. Right. Again, she, yeah, she wastes this on him. Um, just as we could say, our Lord is, is, is wasteful. He's, he is, he is the one who's prodigal, yeah. uh, in, in giving abundantly and more than, than we obviously deserve. I was thinking too, you know, with, with, with baptism, uh, where we are anointed with the Holy spirit to the, to the, to the world's eye, it doesn't look like much. Right. Right. Especially in the way that, that we baptize with just a couple of sprinkles of water as we're instructed. That's all that's needed, right? So Luther, you know, that's, I think that's how Luther orders his catechism. What is this? What is baptism? What, what are you doing? I mean, it doesn't, doesn't look like anything. Right. Or with the Lord's Supper, just this little tiny wafer and a sip of wine. But with those couple, uh, the three sprinkles of water, you are flooded uh, with the righteousness of Christ. You are covered. Uh, and cleansed by his blood, uh, what looks to be small and insignificant is actually abundant. And same with the the Lord's Supper, a little bit of bread, a little bit of wine. You're not just receiving a slice of Jesus' body or a yeah. sip of his blood. You're receiving the whole thing, that he is indeed uh, abundant in his gifts to us in the church. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, just think about the way that he provides for the, the 5,000 and the 4,000 and the, the miracle of lo- the loaves and the fish that he, all those leftovers, there's always more than you need. So certainly the, the three splashes of water is all that is needed, but, but maybe if you throw a few handfuls on the, the one to be baptized and some lands on the floor afterwards, it's, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah. If your if your if your alb gets wet, then then <laughs> let it let it let that be as a reminder of the overflowing grace right. of God yeah. that He is pouring out upon us in holy baptism. Fantastic, fantastic. So okay, that's that's the first image: the precious oil running down on Aaron all the way down his robes. The second image is the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. So I think we might need to do a little bit of geography here, Pastor Haller. What what are we talking about in the second image? Yeah, so Mount Hermon is really not just one mountain, but it's more of a mountain range uh, covering uh, quite a few miles at the northern tip of the Promised Land. And it was uh, used by Joshua to give us a border of the Promised Land that Manasseh uh, went only so far as this mountain range, Mount Hermon. So it's many mountains. So again, just as in the oil, we had many different ingredients to make one um, holy and anointing oil. Here we have many mountains mm. that, are, that are simply described as, as one. And um, so a couple of interesting things happen at Mount Hermon in the New Testament, the Gospels, that uh, at the foot of Mount Hermon uh, is the city of Caesarea Philippi. Uh, which was created by uh, Philip, the son of Herod the Great. And there some horrible worship practices were taking place. And this is just north of Galilee, where faithful Jews live and dwell and journey down south to Jerusalem. Um, but just north of them, uh, pagan cultish practices uh, are happening. Uh, but there we uh, read in Matthew 16 that Jesus gathers his disciples and asks them a very important question. Who do people say that I am? And of course, they have many different answers that you're, some say you're a prophet, some say you're Elijah or John the Baptist, come back dead. Um, then he asks, who do you say that I am? To which, of course, Peter makes the great confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Uh, and then our Lord responds, uh, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for my father has revealed this to you. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So what a beautiful image to have in mind that Jesus speaks of, of a rock as Peter makes this great confession. Here is the biggest rock around, Mount Hermon. Um, and uh, so... There is the foundation of the church, the confession of St. Peter, Christ being the cornerstone is the Christ, the son of God. And as we've talked, um, that there is where we find unity in the church coming from Christ uh, to us. Um, also, Mount Hermon is possibly, and I, I think it is, the site for the transfiguration. Um, that, uh, again, this, this comes right after Peter makes this great confession in Matthew 16 and Matthew 17, he takes Peter, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on a high mountain. Well, there's no higher mountain around but Mount Hermon. And in Luke's gospel, he just describes it as the mountain, hmm. right? The one. Well, that seems to be, again, an indication that this is Mount Hermon. So this was very much a holy mountain. This was, uh, you know, one that you looked up to. Uh, that you had to ascend, um, uh, that, uh, again, was an, an image and a reminder that uh, God comes from above uh, down to us. Uh, there in the transfiguration, Jesus reveals himself to be 
to be God's son, uh, high up on that mountain, but he doesn't stay on that mountain. He comes down, uh, that he descends to Jerusalem, hmm. to the mountains of Zion, where he will ascend uh, at, on the cross with the sins of the world upon his shoulders. And there is where we are united. Uh, there, is, there is the church, the crucified Christ, the body of Christ being laid down for the life uh, of the world. You know, I, I have never really thought about Mount Hermon being the site of the transfiguration in those terms. I mean, I know, I know there's, there's some debate as to where exactly it, it happened, and I know Mount Hermon is a possibility, but I really like what you just did there. With the, with the transfiguration and then the way Jesus descends from that mountain to go to Jerusalem. That, that's fantastic. So I, maybe, maybe you convinced me that Mount Hermon is, is the Mount of Transfiguration just so that you can preach that sermon on, on Transfiguration Sunday. That's, that's fantastic. So, so talk more about that imagery that's, that's given here, the dew of Hermon falling on the mountains of Zion. I mean, I suppose geographically, you know, Hermon... I believe would have received more rain than than Jerusalem, and so there's there's maybe some you know geographic meteorological realities going on, but but also what's the theological reality that's being described? Yeah, so not just rain, but also snow. There, uh, the 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 tips of Mount Hermon were always covered with snow, so uh, you know it's described here as dew, but there's there's lots of water rushing down from Mount Hermon. Um, in fact, this is the source of the Jordan River. Uh, Back to Caesarea Philippi, uh, we see water coming right out from the rock and, and pouring down all the way uh, to Jerusalem by means of the, of the Jordan River. So this, without this dew of Mount Hermon, uh, the mountains of Zion are simply dry and desolate, that Jerusalem and the surrounding regions geographically are, are, would be desert-like. Um, in fact, uh, Zion, we don't really know where this name comes comes from, but it could come from a word that means dry, desolate. Hmm. Um, and so without Mount Hermon and the dew that comes down from there and trickles all the way south, Zion would not be Zion. It would not be this fertile land. Um, it would be uh, a, a wasteland. Hmm. And so we get lots of images with that that we see throughout Scripture that the Lord, who is from the top, uh, gives light down to those who are at the bottom, that he gives uh, fertility to those who are barren, and women like uh, Sarah and Hannah, and then finally Elizabeth, uh, as she is the, uh, the mother of John the Baptist, images constantly of light to darkness, that in the beginning there was light, and that wasn't the sun, the moon, or the stars yet, it was simply God giving light to where there was none, that his light shatters the darkness, that he gives life to those things that are dead, that he breathes life into this mound of dirt and creates man. And then, of course, all of this is, um, is seen most uh, fully in the incarnation, that God comes down to man to dwell with them. Yeah. So, okay. So, we, again, we have these two images of things coming down from God, his gifts to us. Now, from that, the dew of Hermon falling in the mount, mountains of Zion, the psalm concludes by saying, for there, so I'm assuming that the, that there is Mount Zion, 
That's for so there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So as, again, thinking about the pilgrims going up to Jerusalem to worship, they're going to the right place because they're going to the place the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Uh, talk to us about this last part of Psalm 133. Yeah, so again, uh, it, 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 it shows us that the unity is found in Jerusalem on the mountains of Zion at the temple, that the place of worship is where God dwells with his people, where they dwell with them, and there we are unified. So for the Old Testament people, the temple mount uh, is where God gives his blessing. And his blessing, which he commands, is life. Life forevermore. That's the ultimate blessing, that we would not die. God does not desire the death of the wicked, but the wicked would turn and live. So there in their temple worship practices and their sacrifices, God is giving them life. Uh, he is sustaining them, not only in this life, but the life to come, that there is uh, where they find salvation. Um, but as we've been talking about and referring to, that, that ultimately this mountain of Zion is the mountain outside of uh, the Temple Mount, outside of the city of Jerusalem, Mount Calvary. Uh, and there is where God ultimately dwells with his people in the most intimate way possible, that he is not only with them in the in a glory cloud or in fire, but he is with them in their own flesh and blood. That God has become man. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled, templed among us. So there in Mount Calvary, we see our God dwelling with us to give us life. Um, as Jesus says in John 6, the, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Um, so that is ultimately where this psalm is fulfilled at Golgotha, that we as brothers of Christ, made his brothers by his blood given to us in holy baptism, we as brothers are united by means of the death and resurrection of Jesus, where he gives us all the same life, his life. Again, not just life now, but life for all eternity. Hmm. And then finally, we can see that this mountain has, uh, is not only there in Jerusalem on the outskirts of town, but now this mountain is in the Holy Christian Church throughout the world. That Mount Zion is the holy city, uh, this new Jerusalem that will uh, come to fruition on the last day at the resurrection, but now is found in each and every one of our congregations, that we may be, our church building may be on the, uh, on flat plain lands like we are out here in Fairgrove, but it's a mountain. It's a high mountain uh, because God comes down like the oil of Aaron, like the dew of Hermon. He comes down uh, in uh, word and sacrament to dwell with us. Uh, that again, we, don't lift up our hearts by throwing them into the air, but the Lord has thrown himself down to us. Um, and there we are united. Paul speaks about this in uh, Ephesians chapter four, that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Uh, that it's only through Christ that we are one with one another. And I find this so beautiful in our liturgy, in our ceremonies, that this is this unity is played out and it's it's seen and heard. Uh, you think about the things we do in worship, simply uh, starting with hymns, right? We sing hymns together. Uh, think about that, especially in today's 
day and age where people don't sing together, yeah. right? There, there's not groups of people singing unless it's an organized choir. But here we just have random people who, who may sing well, who may not sing well, who may know the tune, who may not know the tune. And they come together with one voice yeah. uh, in our hymnody and in our, in our liturgy and canticles. Um, think about the creeds. That when we confess, we say, I believe in one God. We're all saying it together. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty. Um, in the prayers of the church, they're called that. They're yeah. not the prayers of the pastor. It's the prayer of the church that we, the pastor is praying on our behalf, but it's our prayers together. And how those prayers culminate in the Lord's prayer, which is not just his prayer to hold on to, but it's our prayer. And so we pray with Jesus, our Father who art in heaven. We pray together, our Father who art in heaven. And then finally, as we've been alluding to this whole time, it culminates in the Lord's Supper, uh, that there our Lord descends down to us, where he invites us to ascend up to him. And together we receive this meal. Certainly we receive it as individuals, but we kneel together, we come together. We may not know who we're uh, standing or kneeling next to, but we're all partaking of the same bread and of the same wine, of the same body and blood of our Lord. And there we are united more than ever. There we receive life forevermore. Mm, fantastic, fantastic. Yeah, as, as the... As the bread is made from many grains, so the Lord brings us together into his body. As the, the wine is from many grapes, so the, the Lord unites us together. This is his gift to us. God be praised. Pastor Joshua Haller is pastor at Grace Evangelical Lutheran Church in Fairgrove, Michigan. He has been helping us today to study Psalm 133. Pastor Haller, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you so much. Good to be with you. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Indeed, it is quite true. This is good. It is a gift from God himself. This unity comes down from heaven. He creates it through his son, Jesus Christ, who is our brother. He is our brother who has died and risen for us. And in that reality, we are united as brothers together in him, praying to our Father, receiving his holy supper together as one holy Christian church, how good and pleasant it is to dwell in that God-given unity. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Psalm 133, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. <laughs>